the time when wargamers played with chainmail and the rise of the wizards of the coast, there was an age of gamers. And unto this, Gygax, destined to bear the crown jewel of TSR upon a troubled brow, to show you all how to roll for initiative. Welcome to the Roll for Initiative podcast, issue number 66. I am one of your hosts, DM Vince, along with DM Matt, or are we calling you GM Matt? What are we calling you now? I have no idea. Maybe we should be make it a poll. What should I be called? There you go. GM, yes. producer, or DM? Yes. And as as usual, uh, DM Will sitting in with us. Hey there, what's going on? Yeah, not much. And uh, DM Nick is uh, sitting out this week as uh, he took his kids to go out and pumpkin picking and carving and things like that. <laughs> so, you know, family comes first. So. Yes. And he said, gave us the blessing to do the show. So we said, all right, Nick, we'll do the show. Mm-hmm. You know how people like to listen to the show, and some people are like, show, please. Right. So. But, yeah, so this will be a Christopher Walken free show, unfortunately. Yes, but... We do have to say, get to the chopper. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. You got to stop that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we have uh, no reviews this week. So I checked on iTunes like Nick usually does. And uh, since we don't have any emails this week or anything to talk about, we're going to head right into the table manners. Uh, so we'll go into that right now. Get the show started. Yeah. I remember back in the day. A fella knew how to judge a fireball on the fly and how far the cleric could push the undead he turned. I tell you, with all these min-maxers and munchkins, metagame and power game, there's something missing that I'm here to learn you. Now sit down and crack your book while I commence to teach you some. Table manners. Okay, folks, on this week's episode of Table Manners, we are going to talk about the character class, The Thief. Oh, oh yes, The Thief. Uh, I really want to stress the most important thing is the creative origins of The Thief. I, I thought that was pretty interesting because we covered uh, the uh, the Barbarian last week. This week, uh, they talk about, we are going to talk about how The Thief is related to uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Bilbo Baggins, Fritz Lieber's The Grey Mouser, and Jack Vance's Cudgel the Clever. I never read any of those books and everything as far as, as Jack Vance is concerned. Do you all know anything about that? Uh, I know Jason used to be a big fan of Jack Vance, and I, his books were really good as far as what he said. I've only glanced over a couple of his books, and I thought they were pretty good. I just never had a chance to really sit down and read them. Read them, Matt, what about you? Yeah, I haven't had a chance to read any Jack Vance either, so I'm kind of in the dark about his writing. I know Gary was a big uh a fan of Jack Vance material, obviously, but <laughs> oh yes, definitely, definitely in the in the spell casting uh, department for sure. Yeah. But uh, the thief class was introduced in the original 1975 Greyhawk Supplement One. Under that system, they had a four hit die uh, variant of the of the thief, and we all know that in uh, first edition they're a D six. But then throughout the, the years from 1974 all the way up to 1988, there, there are you know, quite a few variants of thieves. Um, I like the thief. The thief is a, is a great class. It is a main staple class of any character group, uh, arguably, I, I, I mean, undeniably, that's the case. I mean, what do you have? A fighter, mm-hmm. a cleric, a magic user, and a thief. Correct. Yeah. 
I mean, I can't even imagine a party without a thief. I've played in those before, and they're kind of rough because the what the thief brings to the table that really no other class can really do even remotely effective. Yeah. You go from picking locks to bashing in doors and alerting monsters all over the place. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I like to, I like to see how they decide to open, you know, a chest in a room that, that's locked and everything. If they pick straws or what have you, I think someone said that uh, one time that they I forgot who it was on the OSR gaming forums that the person used a lightning bolt to open it up. I was like, yeah. that's kind of a waste of a spell. <laughs> I, I've used magic missile before to open chest. <laughs> that's hilarious. And then we go back to the subject of. Things have to make saving throws inside the chest if it fails. Yeah, yeah. And, and obviously, it's probably going to fail because it doesn't have the ability to move out of the way of the uh, lightning bolt. Exactly. <laughs> That's hilarious. Mm-hmm. But uh, as I was looking, you know, throughout Dragon magazines and White Dwarf magazines, I, I looked at the number of variants of thief classes, and uh, you know, there's a couple out there that I really like. Let me start with White Dwarf magazine. White Dwarf. Uh, number 24 had a detective character class, which is basically a thief with some minor spellcasting abilities. Oh, cool. I thought that was pretty good because, you know, when I look at it, you know, I think a dual class thief is probably one of the greatest thieves that you can play in first edition. Mm. You know, I, wouldn't, I would start off as a magic user, probably do like maybe one, two, three levels of magic user, and then go straight into being a thief from there on. That's not a bad I idea. Yeah. I mean, there's some good spells that, you know, that a magic user can complement a thief with, you know, spiders, climb, and so on and so on. But the uh, detective thief class is really an interesting class. I, I really liked it. Uh, more or less not an adventuring type of thief. It's more like a, uh, a detective or like a Sherlock Holmes kind of style. It's kind of weird. Hmm. I could see that, yeah, the magic user would be a great thing to uh, pull up because, of, like you said, use the magic missile and you can use the spider climb. The ventriloquism would be perfect for distraction for the uh, thief. Oh, and sleep. And sleep. Perfect to go slit the throats. Certainly. <laughs> Definitely. So also now, uh, other thief variants would be like uh, the... The, uh, the Thief Acrobat in Unearthed Arcana, which is in Dragon number 69. And uh, the one in number 69 and Unearthed Arcana are the same one. Mm. We got the uh, the Bandit in Dragon Magazine number 63. Now, I understand that some of these variants are NPCs, but they can easily be made uh, a playing character in, you know, in first edition D&D. The Assassin, the Monk, and both the Oriental Adventures Handbook and the Player's Handbook both have thieving abilities. So again, they are a variant of thief. Not the not strong in their thieving abilities, but still they're a variant of thief. Then you have the bounty hunter in Dragon Magazine number fifty-two, another NPC. So, and I really like that character. I didn't do too much uh, research into him, but again, another good character there. I think y'all would like the alignment uh, issues they have with the bounty hunter. Hmm. I always liked the bounty hunter type class. I have to look that up. Yeah, and definitely when we post this on the forum and everything, then I will, of course, provide the uh, the necessary material so people can look at that if they don't own that magazine. But the Bounty Hunter has some alignment restrictions, so uh, really take a look into those. But again, they are a thief of variant. They all have thieving abilities of some kind. Not normally pickpockets or what have you, but move silently, uh, use of disguise, climbing, and all that other stuff. 
So as I was continuing to look into the thief and everything, I said, there's so many articles on thieves in Dragon Magazine. There was a couple that really caught my eye. I think uh, Dragon Magazine number 104 has three articles dedicated to a thief. The first article was The Well-Rounded Thief. Really great article because it pretty much helped a player figure out what kind of, what motivates the thief, your thief as a player character? Is it a thief of greed? So the only reason you're a thief is because you're a greedy, you know, player character, whatever the case may be. So what are you doing? You're going around trying to grab as much loot as possible. Or are you a recreational thief? You just do it for fun, you know, for, uh, for the poop and giggles. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then they got a, a thief of revenge. So I don't understand what that means, basically. What do y'all think? A thief of revenge? No, what does that mean? A revenge-driven thief. What would that mean? He's only out to get revenge on whatever happened to him. Yeah, it's like he feels wronged for maybe by society or like a specific person, and he's been driven to a life of crime because of it, and he just and he justifies everything he does when it comes to stealing through what what wrong or perceived wrong he's experienced. Oh. What does that sound like? Robin Hood? Yeah. Could be a Robin Hood. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And then there's the artistic thief. So I guess they, they kind of like steal things and do it in a, in a grandiose manner to make them famous, perhaps? Like, like a giant uh, Ocean's Eleven type elaborate scheme. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's what I thought. Ooh. And then, of course, you have the professional thief. I think that most, most player characters probably fall in that, in that, that category right there. But there was another article there on why uh, the race is ahead of class. So let's say someone wanted to be a dwarven thief or a gnomish thief, a halfling thief, or an elven thief. And it kind of covered each race. And it's pretty interesting on, on, on a racist perception of, of being a thief. And so they each had their individual descriptions. And I like the one on the elf because apparently them, they say that elves would make the worst thieves. Really? Even though they have yeah. a bonus to dexterity and such? Well, the reason being is because elves don't long for what you would say material goods. Whatever. So, yeah, so they'd be lacking the motivation to become a thief. Right, uh, exactly. So they they have the physical attributes to be amazing thieves, but they just lack the motivation to be one. Well, why can't they be a thief like a like on the leverage TV show type thief? <laughs> yeah. Doing yeah, it to so get it, revenge. It, so go, go, Vince, go ahead. Just saying, doing it to get revenge. There was another revenge example you were looking right. for. Oh, definitely. Like I said, you know, if you look at all these articles, and I think that's why they put them all together in one magazine, was just give someone a, just a well-rounded thief. Why are you thief instead of being just the typical regular? I'm a thief. I will backstab you. I will pickpocket you, and then and so on. Just go on from there on. It just has some interesting stuff there. So you know, role-playing opportunities will definitely be increased by using some of these uh, diverse you know ideas. And the last article that was covered was, was it worth the risk? And basically, it was just an article covering uh, pickpocketing, which is pretty cool. They had a nice chart there, like if a, if a thief was in the city and he wants to pickpocket someone, well, there was a randomized chart there that either the DM rolls, you can let the player roll, the player just won't know what it is. So it could be a noble or it could be a sheriff or it could be just any common NPC. And then there's another chart there of like some of the common miscellaneous things that he might pickpocket from that particular character. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That could be very helpful. Right. Yeah, because you'll always have that person that'll be like, 
oh, I just want to pickpocket just because. And it's like, oh, crap. I need to come up with, okay, who are they pickpocketing? And so, yeah, having a chart like that where you can just quickly generate, okay, this is who you're pickpocketing. This is what they have is very handy. Yeah, I thought it was pretty useful and everything, so I haven't seen that chart in a long time. And just to be honest with you all, I've probably played a thief maybe once or twice, no more than three times in 36 years. So I don't know how many times you all played thieves. I don't think I've ever played a thief in like my 20 years of D&D. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've, I've, played, I've played a thief a couple of times, and I've made use of them this way and that way, but that chart would be pretty interesting to look at. Yeah. So that'd be a thing there to all our viewers and listeners out there and everything. You know, I would like to hear some feedback from those that have, you know, normally majority, most of the time played thieves. I'd like to hear their input. I'm just not a big type of, you know, pickpocket, you know, kind of guy anyway. Yeah. You don't go around ripping people off, you know. <laughs> but uh, another Dragon magazine I looked into was uh, Dragon number 47. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was titled A Special Look. And it, it covered a lot of things, and I know that uh, uh, DM Matt there, you know, read the article too as well. And basically, what it, it talked about how the, the thief and its abilities are more so abused than you know, instead of being considered an underrated character. So it was interesting in how it gave examples of how players will abuse those thieving abilities. Really great article, Matt. I mean, what did you get from it? Oh, I think anyone who has a thief in their party, any DM should read that article just because it gives some great advice, I think, for how to adjudicate some of the crazy stuff thieves will do. And for the players in it, it actually has gives you a new skill, one for setting traps. So you've actually learned how to set traps, which some players may want. Uh, so... I like that as well, because if you can take them apart, you could probably reassemble them. So it makes sense having a setting trap skill. Well, why wouldn't you just use fine roof traps? I mean, that's what I've always used. Right. Uh, let me pull it up. But I think the skill breakdown is different. Yeah, I think it was, too, because it's all about the mechanical nature of the traps. You just understand how to, you know, you can find them. By, by certain means, and then you know how to, you know, disarm them by doing certain things to them. Uh, it, it just, uh, it's, a, it's a great article. It really opens your mind up into, for a DM and both a player on how to really use a thief with, you know, with other uh, abilities. I thought it was a good article. Yeah. Let's see here. All right. And while Matt's looking that up, uh, Dragon 66 covers Thieves Can't. And gives you one of those small little, you know, uh, carry around little books. You know, like when you go to a foreign country, you have one of those small little dictionaries of how to speak, you know, regular languages and all that. You know, yeah. the common words. Yeah. Well, in, in Dragon number 66, they had a Thieves Can Dictionary in there, which is pretty useful. You know, if a DM wants to pull the uh, the player character side and, and do some role playing behind the scenes while the other players are doing something else in the city. Yeah. Okay. I've looked it up, and setting traps, you're you have a better chance of setting a trap than disabling it. At level one, uh, finding and removing a trap is twenty percent, but setting it's twenty six. Uh, level two, find removes twenty five, but setting it's thirty two. So there, and then it just the gap grows as you go up in level. At the very high end. You have a better chance at like level fifteen. Your uh, chance to set a trap is eighty, but your uh, chance to find a trap is ninety. 
So at some point, it actually reverses, and it's easier to find traps than set them. But starting out, it's easier to set. Maybe so you're so used to setting them that you figure out, I don't know, finding right. them is easier? I don't know. Yeah, I guess you end up with a better understanding of how they work, and there's... I, maybe they they're just working under assumption there's a certain amount of difficulty in setting a trap period and yeah. whereas when it comes to finding traps the more experience you have the better are you are at spotting them because it's not like the difficulty increases or something i really don't know but yeah so again a lot of interesting articles in there and um i believe the thief levels up faster than any other character if i'm still correct yes Mm-hmm. Yes, I thought it so. They have the lowest amount of experience points. It looks like. Yes, you know, and that's a, that's that's a, you know, it's funny how they bring that up because in Dragon Magazine number seventy three, there is a uh, it's called Thieves Climb Should Be Leveled Out. It's a it's an interesting article that talks about the mechanics and and the creation of thief and compares the thief from the expert rule book and that of the thief in the first edition player's handbook in respect to their thieving skills, their combat ability, and their level's progression. I believe that the article is trying to impress upon the reader on why the thief is not a powerful combatant, but not as weak as a magic user to a certain degree. So that was a very interesting article and everything, but even then so, a first-level thief in trying to find and remove traps, it's still a very low percentage, if I'm correct. It all depends on, you know, the character cl- I mean, the character race, the dexterity bonus, and so on. Right. Yeah, your base percentage is 20% to find a trap at level 1, and then once you throw in your racial adjustments, you can get that up a little bit. But still, more often than not, you will not find a trap or disarm it at level 1. And- and you know what? I think that's why a lot of people do not – well, I shouldn't say a lot of people. I can't. I have to have statistics. But I think that's why a good portion of people do not really play thieves. Right. Hmm. And, yeah. and also, the thief really isn't a class when you play it that's going to get a lot of glory. It's not the one that's going to land the killing blow taking out the big bad. It's not the one that's going to pull off the flashy spell that clears the room. It's more of a support class in a lot of ways. It's the one letting the fighter, letting the magic user get to the big bad or the treasure. They're the one that they're more of a like a scout pathfinder. They're the one that le- enables the other classes to shine. Well, you know, they got that backstab move that's pretty deadly when you get higher in level. So right, but it's oh yeah, your, right. But at your low levels, though. Yeah, uh, just on the surface, when you look at their damage output, they're one of the weaker class because even the magic user, they have they can pump out in one round quite a bit of damage compared to that thief who actually has to spend several turns positioning for that backstab. So they'll spend a lot of time trying to get that one big hit, whereas a magic user can dish it out just by showing up. <laughs> Yeah, being, you know, and he has the ability to you know, deal out damage much faster than, you know, the thief. Thief's right. got to hide in shadows, got to make that roll, which comes up to another thing, you know. I, as the DM, I'm the one that rolls the percentile dice to see whether or not they're successful. I don't know how you all do it, so what are your thoughts on that? You roll the percentile? Yeah. Oh, yes, definitely, because if, if a thief is searching for traps, I'm, I'm the one that's going to know whether or not he fails or not. Right. Well, I I make them roll, and I decide what number ahead of time that it's going to be if he fails or not, no matter regardless of what his chart says. So, 
Right. I let them, yeah, I let them roll as well, but I don't tell them all the modifiers they're looking for that, that'll apply to it. Yeah, so. They'll just tell me I beat my, my chart base of 52 or whatever, and I'll be like, all right, and I describe the situation from there. Oh, okay, that's interesting. That's a nice output on that. Yes, I just, you know, I already had that number set there, and I usually I roll. But that's all good. No, different DM styles. That's, right. that's why, we, why we do this. Well, wasn't that the original intention for, for the tournament rules, is to roll everything behind the screen? Wow. You know, every time that I have played in those tournament rules, it seems like, yes, everything was. Yeah, I thought that was the original purpose of uh, Advance in the, in the tournament rules that Gary had designed was for the right. DM to roll everything, the players just to role-play everything out. I believe that was what it was, and, I, and that's the same thing. We apply these rules also in current D&D tournaments that we run now, especially the ones that I ran last year. Stuff, Any stuff that required any type of you know check for traps or searching for doors, everything was behind the screen. Right. Yeah. yeah, because what that does is that prevents metagaming. I despise right. metagaming. Good Good yeah. lord, I, I despise metagaming. Yeah, <laughs> I don't blame you. Because yeah. when one person, if you have two thieves in the party, and that part, and that, that the first thief rolls, and, and the other thief says, "Well, I don't think he found it." So then you know, that's, well, I'm gonna try next, and that's that's why I despise the metagaming. That that's what that promotes. I don't like that really. That's why I roll behind the screen. Right, and then players can also uh, reverse engineer armor classes, and then they can be if they kill one monster, they can. If you have multiples of a monster and they kill one, they can be like, well, we dealt this much damage to it. So that means we need to deal this much more damage to this other one and it'll die. And Yes. So, but no, overall, though, I think the Thief is, is a great complement to a party. It, it is a necessity for, you know, your typical average dungeon crawl, hack and slash, whatever the case may be. Definitely. But there was one thing I did read in, in Dragon Magazine I thought pretty funny, and it was a, a reader's complaint about thieves and backstab. And then just take this for an example. You know, a human thief, average height, five foot ten. He tries to backstab a frost giant. Hmm. <laughs> so, you know, out in the open. Let's just say out in the open. Right. Will he do that damage as dictated by the PHB if it's a successful, you know, back attack? Well, to his foot, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I say I say he could because yes. there's various points on the body. It doesn't actually have to be your back to inflict additional damage. Well, if you just know anatomy well enough, you know where on the leg. Guess what? <laughs> if I hit this point, I severed a main artery. <laughs> that's so, true. Yeah, I, I mean, think it, you would. Yeah, know. that's the I whole point know. of that backstab is you know the right spot to hit. Right. Yeah, so that's, you know, a point of contention for some people that really get into the game too much, that, you know, that border, that realism, you know, kind of thing. Like, well, that's not realistic. You can't backstab a a 15-foot, you know, giant or a 12-foot giant and and do damage to him like that. That's not possible. You can only hit him in the back of the ankle or, you know, whatever the case may be. Right. In in that case, can you you backstab Tiamat? Well, <laughs> from above, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> That's a good yeah. point. I mean, I didn't even consider using a dragon as an example, but uh, uh, according to the rules of backstab, you can backstab any creature that is capable of suffering damage from that specialized attack. Now, there's some creatures, of course, you can't backstab, like a like a skeleton or you know something right. like that, an undead creature, or I believe constructs are part of that too. Am I correct? Mm, I can't comment on yeah. that. Yeah. I can't recall right now. There's some creatures that are impervious to that attack. They right. just they don't take that damage. But you know, right. just another thought. Right. Again, I think pe- yeah, I think people are getting hung up on the word backstab. 
backstab to me doesn't mean I'm stabbing you in the back. It means I know how to stab you in a vital area, not necessarily your back. Right. I like so, that. I, I believe that's what it's all about there. Right. It's don't, more of a vital strike than a backstab. Don't, don't the mechanics say it has to be done from behind, though? Right. But that's just, I've always thought of it as by doing it from behind those vital spots, you can actually get to the vital spot because if you do it head on, a person will naturally protect the vital areas. Yeah. Right. So. But yeah, backstab, it's one of those, those, those controversial subjects and everything. So, you know, like I said, that, that basically is the thief in a nutshell. I know that there's much more material out there on thieves. I know there's a lot, but you know, the show is only dedicated for a good hour, an hour and a half and everything. And I don't want to doc, you know, take over the conversation and everything. But again, you know, to the view, to the listeners out there and everything, whatever they have on thieves, let us know. Oh, we could just put the mics down and let you talk, Will. It's no problem. Right, Matt? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> well, we'll have no. the uh, RFI extended cut. <laughs> no, that's that's embarrassing, and I don't like talking to myself. That doesn't suck. <laughs> <laughs> All right, email us, rfistaff at gmail.com, and tell us about your experiences with the thief. I know quite a few people who had emailed us and written in the forums asking about thieves. There you have a little... Blurb, the nutshell, whatever you want to call it about thieves, and we'll head into game mechanics. Oh man, what the heck is that? Understand, you fool! I have a spell that will work here! What do you mean I can't hit with that? Oh, right, fine. Show it to me in the book. Welcome to Game Mechanics. Game Mechanics this week, uh, we're going to be talking about the effects of weather part two. This time, it's heat and sun and overheating. Now, the cold weather was a little more forgiving when it came to adventuring in, but when it comes to heat and sun and that overheating, you know, walking around in plate mail or even chain mail for that matter... And that sun blaring down on you, your character's going to be like, oh, <gasps> drinking water constantly. So you got to make sure you have plenty of water when running around. And I believe there's a chart in uh, the Wilderness Survival Guide. Yes. Yes. Uh, regarding overheating in your character. And if you just, I forget what page it is offhand, but. Uh, starts on page 18. It starts giving characters negative effects for being in the sun and the heat for too long, depending on what they're wearing and what they're doing. Right. Now, I think the more. The negative modifier. I'm not looking at the chart offhand, but I, I'm going from memory. The more strenuous activity you're doing, obviously, the more negatives you're going to have. Right. There's actually two sets of negatives. One for just being out in the temperature, and the other for actually exerting yourself. And it becomes pretty unforgiving <laughs> uh, to anyone wearing any sort of heavy armor. You just imagine the knights back in the day running around with that full plate armor, and just and if it was like a ninety degree day outside, they must have been dying. Yeah, I mean, just looking at this chart, if you're, if it's just temperate weather, like seventy degrees outside, we'll say, uh-huh. and you're in full plate, you add thirty for wearing full plate. But considering you're not naked underneath your armor, you would have just, we'll say, moderate clothing, which will add another 20. So you're adding 50 to your personal temperature. 
Jeez. at 70 degrees. So that's 120 <laughs> effective. You're cooking. Yeah. So if you're using these rules, your party will be nerfed if they get into extended combat. Because at 120 or higher, you're taking six damage. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and then it's, uh, that's unprotected. Yes, like six damage. Well, because there's actually two sets, unprotected and protected, which for heat, I'm kind of wondering what they would consider unprotected. Maybe without clothes? Yeah, I could see that, but then just about anything would be considered protected unless, I guess if you had like loose fitting clothes that covered your skin Mm. but wasn't clinging to it so you could actually sweat underneath. Oh, okay. Maybe it's just talking about if you're wearing like a short sleeve shirt or you're right. wearing like a short pants or something. Yeah, loose, the light colored, loose fitting clothing, perhaps. Uh, but yeah. well, I can tell you that uh, I used these rules oh. uh, later on when this book came out. When I did the I two I three, I'm sorry, I'm trying to remember when Pharaoh uh, Pharaoh's I three. I3, I4, I5, the Pharaoh series. And I tell you, it's, it's awesome to have the party rolling, you know, roaming around the desert, you know, in, in basically robes when they're dealing with wandering monsters. I think it's awesome. Right. Yeah. But as long as you have a cleric with you, one that's, you know, that they can cast create water, I mean, you're fine. There, there should be no problems. Right. As long as you don't get involved in uh, extended combat. Right. At that point, you could start collapsing due to heat exhaustion and heat stroke. Yeah, you definitely don't want those. No, yeah, because heat stroke's particularly nasty. If you collapse from that, you actually have the potential to loo- to die from constitution loss. And even if you do recover, uh, you only uh, from the heat stroke, you can only regain two thirds. Of the Constitution points lost the heat stroke, mm. so it's now actually... we know why Conan ran around in his underwear. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> and that also explains all the Larry Elmore art as to why the women were so scantily clad. I just thought he liked scantily clad women. No, apparently it was due to heat. It was, I guess, very hot wherever he drew his uh, women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you gonna we'll go, go with, with that, that. Man? Yeah, you gonna go with that man, huh? Yeah, I'll go. With that. <laughs> I'm sure Larry would appreciate that. Yes. So uh, I don't remember seeing any major articles on this. Will, did you see anything when looking through the dragons? Actually, there was a, there is one good article I saw that I want to remember that it was Dragon Number Sixty Eight that covered uh, weather in the world of Greyhawk. Actually, it was a really extended article. It seemed like it was like six, seven, maybe eight pages worth and everything, and it covered all all you know topics on weather and everything. But I didn't really go into great detail on it because I was just strictly going by the uh, the wilderness, you know, survival guide. Yeah, as right. far as he's concerned. But I know that there's some articles in there, and I, I, I definitely will find some and, and post them later on when we, we get this on the forum. Yeah, there's also an article in that same issue. It, this is a throwback to our previous episode where we talked about cold running ice age adventures. Oh, okay. So. Now I did see that also in you know Dragon Magazine too that I need to cover that up, cover that you know sometime here in the future and, and put those on on the website as well. 
but I definitely do not like traveling. You know, I don't mind traveling in the desert. At least that's dry heat. But you travel in those jungles where it's humid and nasty. Oh. Yeah. That's and just... Except, yeah, you have to take care of that armor. Oh, yeah. Then, yeah, because in the Wilderness Survival Guide, it also talks about the effects of weather on equipment, too. And where was that? Because oh, I was flipping through and I saw that. Oh, yeah. on page on page 28. Yeah, page 28, effects of precip- precipitation and immersion. So you could even say as you're going through that rainforest, apply some of these rules. So all of a sudden you start having some rust just due to extended uh, exposure to the moisture. So, See, I like the effects of blowing sand and dust, especially if you're traveling in a hot climate like the desert. Right. That stuff's even worse. I don't know if I'd rather be human and miserable or do I want, you know, dust underneath or, you know, grains of sand underneath my armor as I'm walking. Right. Or if you have the exposed skin where it just starts ripping at your flesh if the wind picks up high enough, the sandstorms. Yeah, certainly. But I think the key thing is mostly with the heat stroke is you never want to be alone if there's a chance of heat stroke because if you fall unconscious, you're going to die. And then the vultures show up, and they just sit there and wait for you to, you know, be pecked at. And... <laughs> yeah. You always can bite them and break them in the neck like Conan did in the movie. Yeah. And you always find that lucky cactus with water. Because every cactus has water on the bottom. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. It's a... And then, or that random oasis. Uh-huh. Or the peyote, yes. peyote you can eat on the side, like, you know, beavis in my head. Then, then you'll start seeing many more oasises than actually exist. <laughs> get the yep. Good old mirages. Mm. So uh, that's pretty much heating and, and sun and, and uh, overexhaustion and the heat and effects of weather. Uh, I don't know. I really haven't used these rules very much. I know Will said you used them quite a bit ever since uh, using those modules I3 to I5. Oh, yes, definitely those three because I like the, the desert wilderness Adventures. I can see this being used in uh, B4, uh, the uh, old yes. school D&D module, because that's a whole sand desert thing. Exactly, and that was one thing that I, you know, uh, lamented about, you know, on my review of that module was the lack of description of, of traveling the desert. They made it straight up like you was traveling the desert for one day, you find these uh, remains of this uh, destroyed city or deserted city, and then they put you right in there, you know, and there was nothing else. Yeah, well, the rules were simpler then. <laughs> yeah, they were. All right, so give us a shout-out, give us an email, write us in the forums, and we'll head into Creature Feature. That is not it, is not get and with strange ears, even death may die. I welcome the unwary to the Creature Feature Theater. So the creature this week is going to be a four-armed purple... Oh, I'm sorry. It's a four-armed, two-legged zill. And looking at the picture right away, it just kind of freaks me out looking at it. It's like one of those little scary, like, critter things that, like, Steven Spielberg would come up with that's going to scare me in the middle of the night. I guess a a chest burster from Aliens or something. I mean, it's... It's it's kind of a weird creature because they they kind of remind me of the phase spider in a way, but they're not. They kind of phase in and out. Well, I shouldn't phase. They jump in and out between the uh, what it was the ethereal and the primaterial plane. It takes them two rounds to do this, to, you know, go back and forth. But they can jump out and just like surprise the heck out of you and then grab you. 
and take its other arms and just pound the crap out of you, subdually wise. And then the DM has a chance, the total number of hit points, uh, what is it, uh, let's see here. Total number of hit points of the victim divided by, no, the other way around. Subdual damage divided by the total number of hit points, that's how much the percentage of you get knocked out per round. And all this creature really wants to do is just, like, live and lay eggs. And, you know, they're lawful evil in alignment. So I really don't see their purpose other than be annoying. Yeah, I mean, considering they implant their eggs in living people and they keep them on the uh, ethereal plane. So it's, I mean, if you wanted to run a campaign where villagers were disappearing with without a trace and no one knows why i you could use them for that um but as for just like a random monster yeah they would, they would just be too annoying they, they would actually have to be a focal point of your campaign to really use you can't just pop these in because they're just so nasty yeah, this is one monster that I really do not like. And, and I'm seeing this from a player's perspective because, like I said, I, I don't recall ever running into one of these, but I do know some modules that have them. But most most players will not have, you know, knowledge of this creature. I mean, this creature can attack you. It, it can, you know, infest you and then just disappear and then not knowing what's going on. And then you start taking, of course, the damage from the creature eating you inside out. But just look at its intelligence. It's a very intelligent being. Yeah. And the number appearing is one to six. This is a nasty monster. And a 90% chance to uh, surprise you when it comes out of the phase. So, Right. And they also have a 70% magic resistance. So even if one pops to try to grab you, it's they're going to be hard to get off, even if you have like a party with you. Um, the only time they lose their magic resistance is when they're trying to phase back to the ethereal plane. And, but as soon as they get to the ethereal plane, the resistance comes back. So there's like two rounds where they're actually vulnerable when they're trying to phase. Other than that, they are just nasty. It's sort of like the Klingon ship, but it's starting to phase in and out. Right. That's the time to get them. Yeah, I never could understand the logic of them, you know, making it lose its magic resistance. Uh, I know that, you know, that it, it loses it, but it just doesn't make no sense. I think it, they're just saying, like, they're trying to give the players a chance to, you know, defeat this creature before it, you know, phases back into the ethereal plane. Well, I'm thinking that when it's phasing in and out, that on its own plane, where obviously where it stores stuff, it doesn't have the magic resistance. So it's in that in-between phase, so it kind of gets canceled out, because there's two forms of it phasing in and out. If you understand what I'm trying to get at. Oh, I see. Yeah, maybe it's more vulnerable. Yeah. That makes sense. So while it's phasing, the magic resistance just dropped, and there's your there's your opportunity to just blast the heck out of it. Right. So it's it's an annoying creature, and like Matt said, I would use this as a focal point, like stealing villagers, or maybe uh, the princess got captured, and they're holding it ransom and putting eggs in her. Right. <laughs> they, they found out the princess was the perfect breeder. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they're using her to make slurm. <laughs> what was that from again? <laughs> Futurama. Oh, that was it. That's right. <laughs> uh, so the Zill. I don't know who created it. Uh, the obviously the art- artist that drew it was Ross, as you can see the tag there. So I, yeah. I, I, I'm sure it's not Bob Ross, but <laughs> I'd like to know who created this creature because it's kind of weird. It's totally sci-fi-ish. Uh, it was done by Brian Asbury. If you look at the back of the uh, Fiend folio, they give you, you know, all the creatures back there, and it gives you the person that created it. 
Oh, that's right. Yeah, I always forget about that. Well, it's, you know, maybe he got that out of an old sci-fi. Uh, uh, what do they call those old sci-fi books from the uh, '60s? Right. You know, it looks like a creature from the Black Lagoon. Its face kind of looks like a creature from the Black Lagoon. Maybe. How do you do some dual damage with two swords, though? I guess the flat of the blades. Yeah, flat Obviously. of the blades, hilt. Um, Why? The, just use your fists. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, that's all I could really say about the creature. Anyone else have anything to add? No, just very nasty. And if you and if you just randomly pop this upon your players, you're an evil DM. Okay, Book of Sorrows, creature to use. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> all right, tell us how you use it. RFIstaff at gmail dot com, and we'll head into the Dragon's Horde. As the secret portal yields to your efforts, you stand amazed at a vision from the most fevered dreams of avarice. Before you lies the Dragon's Horde. And now we are in the Dragon's Horde, where this week we are going to talk about a weapon or, or an item that, if you gave them to the Zill would be really, really evil. <laughs> the Rope of Entanglement. Dun, 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 dun. I hear the Wonder yes. Woman song in the background. <laughs> Wonder Woman! Uh, Wonder Woman! so much reminds me of her lasso, because uh, the Rope of Entanglement looks exactly like any other magic rope, but upon command, it'll last forward up to 20 feet and upwards up to 10 feet to entangle and tie up up to eight man-sized creatures. Wow. So you can actually tie up like one storm giant or frost gi- or fire giant, two frost or stone or hill giants, three ogres or four bugbears or six gnolls or eight men, ten elves, twelve dwarves, sixteen gnomes. And, and a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> several partridges in a pear tree. <laughs> and it takes just a single segment to strike and another to entwine, but then the it also requires a command, which requires a segment as well. So to actually use it, you have to use three segments. So it takes a little bit to actually pull off. But I think the reason why is because once it entangles you, it cannot be broken by strength. It, it, cannot, it must be hit by edged weapons only. And it has a... AC a negative two and can take 22 hit points to cut through. But those 22 hit points must be inflicted by the same creature. So if you have a party hacking at a rope of entanglement, one person in the party must deal 22 points of damage. You can't, it's not accumulative. Yeah. And if you're tied up in it, you can't deal any damage to it. And... Damage under 22 hit points will repair itself in six turns. So pretty much, once you're entangled in this, unless you do, you have one person deal a lot of damage to it fast, you're stuck. Mm. Yes. Yeah. All it needs yeah. is, the, is the, uh, the serum of truth on it, and you'd be Wonder Woman. Oh, absolutely. I'm also envisioning it's like some wizard using this as a trap. So as you're just walking by, and all of a sudden you're tied up in a rope of entanglement, you could actually get an entire party with one. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. So if we were using this as a a trap or something, what kind of save would you guys give the players? uh, I would just give them... I would just start using grapple rules. 
Grapple rules, or would you use a, maybe a breath weapon save? Because mm. it kind of sounds like it could be a breath weapon save to get yeah. out of the way. Yeah, I could see the breath weapon. I don't know. I, I'm kind of leading towards grapple because it's trying to wrap around you and you're trying to go around it. So I can see but that will just slow things down a bit. You have to figure out, okay, what type of strength do I want to assign to this rope of entanglement? Yeah, you know, I think the big issue here is is whether or not you are surprised. I think that would have to be have to be a big issue with this. Um, I can understand grapple to a certain degree, but this is a rope, and uh, you know, and look how quick it reacts. I mean, like three segments—that's very quick, right? And that would also require initiative as well, too, right? So that's going to be the biggest issue right there. And, and like I said, if you have armor on and you're weighted down with adventuring gear, whatever the case may be and everything, I think this rope is going to win. Yeah. I've never actually used it before, but just looking through it, uh, if a party got a hold of this, this would be the ultimate if you were a bounty hunter and needed to bring someone back alive. Or just if you have that, like a group of orcs rushing at you, you just tie them up. And then, depending upon your alignment, you could coup de gras them. Cool. So. Yeah. Now, I know that the rule says it cannot be broken by sheer strength, that it must be hit by an edge weapon. I suspect that it's still, you know, susceptible to damage like, you know, magical fire or lightning or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, other uh, way, forms of magic. I think the balancing uh, force of that would be if you try to use, like, lightning or fireball or something like that right. the people entangled could also take damage from it and yes unfortunately they wouldn't be able to make a save and throw because they're uh, pretty much subdued there huh right so the preferred way of freeing someone would be an edged weapon but <laughs> it, it, it comes down to that are you trying to pick the lock of the chest or are you going to uh, lightning bolt the chest <laughs> so jeez alright Rope of Entanglement, uh, nice little magical item. Why don't you guys uh, tell us how a little bit about it in your campaigns and how you use it, and tell us about what type of saving throw or how you would do it if a party was using it. If a DM was going to use this as a trap, like Matt had said, the wizard using it against the party, what would you give your players as a save, or what role would you make them use? It's, I always like to hear what other people like to do, so kind of gives me ideas, gives you ideas. That's the whole point of this. So, RFI staff at gmail.com or head over to the alwaysargaming.org forums. The only place to talk about our show and the best place to talk about our show is in those forums right there. And we'll head into uh, the last segment of the night. So, the show is pretty much at end now. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that was a quick show this week. Uh, we went right straight into things. We got it done. And that's that. I mean, unless anyone has anything to add. No, I don't think of anything else right now. So how was the movie The Thing? Did you see that, Will? Yes, we did. Uh, you know, I'm going to tell you, it's, uh, you have to go there with the mentality that it is not going to you know, par up with the Kurt Russell movie. Right. If you go there with that mentality, you're going to do fine. Uh, but uh, in all respects, though, good movie. Um, you know, a lot of people complain about it that they see a lot of elements of it that were used in the Kurt Russell version, which, I mean, that's common sense. I mean, I'm not a doctor or nothing. I know some first aid. But if you had an issue with a parasite or 
there was a test that needed to be done on everyone. I think the blood test would be the most common, you know, source to, you know, to first figure out what the problem is. Yeah. So I see some people complain about it because, again, they brought up that we need to test blood. And before they could, you know, are you all planning on seeing this movie? Uh, eventually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. At some point, well, I'm probably I'm not going to talk too much about that stuff then, you know, but, you know, again, that was brought up. Um, what I did like about it was, though, if you remember from the Kurt Russell thing where they had used, uh, remember when they found the axe in the door? Yes. You'll see why that axe got there uh, and and stuff like that. So you'll see a lot of things. Oh, and plus the, the creature that was found outside by Kurt Russell and them. Mm-hmm. You're going to see how that creature came about. So it, it was a really, really, I really enjoyed it. It's a really gory version, really, to be honest with you. It's, it's kind of gory. So it's a, it's a big prequel movie. Oh, it's a prequel, yes. Uh, the alien vessel issue is still not resolved, and I don't think they'll ever resolve it because they'll never tell you. But I will tell you this. You will get a chance to see what's inside the vessel. I thought that was pretty interesting. Oh, cool. But uh, they'll, they never reveal whether or not the uh, the creature that was driving it or, you know, operating the, the, the ship in the first movie when it crash landed. They never tell you if it was actually one of the alien creatures or if it was a, I mean, a, a thing creature or it was a crewman that was taken over in the process or trying to destroy the ship. Hmm. So it's pretty interesting on, on those things there. Well, cool. Thanks, Will. I think you'll enjoy the movie. It, it, was, uh, it was a lot better than I thought it would be. Good. And just the last couple of notes, I just noticed that um, when I was watching some superhero movies, there was a <laughs> little tiny quick teaser for a Bill and Ted 3 movie. Uh-oh. <laughs> wow. They just kind of showed the photo booth, uh, the photo booth, the phone booth, and it just said Bill and Ted 3, their adventures in time. <laughs> I don't know if that meant, and I went online and looked and... Uh, Keanu Reeves did uh, officially report on, on MTV.com that he was planning on a third movie with the uh, former actor that he was with in the other movie. I shouldn't say former wow. actor. He, well, he probably hasn't had a career anyway. But. <laughs> hey, you know, hey Vince, you know what you forgot to do? What? I just realized why this show was so short today. Why's that? You forgot to ask us what we did during the week. <laughs> so what did you do during the week? <laughs> <laughs> No, I knew he was missing something. I just couldn't think what it was. <laughs> yeah, I just you know, want, wanted to get straight into the show this week. You know, people like... I figured to put it at the end because, you know, why not? I don't know. I'm done. How about you? <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, it's all good. I, it's all good. I, I understand what's going on. You got a lot on your mind. Yeah. So I'm going to just say keep it original, keep it old school, and uh, good night from me. Good night. All right. See you later. for initiative.